The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. If you'll open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 28. Uh, this is somewhat a bittersweet moment if we've, as we've come to this last section of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Matthew, as we all know, has been our Sunday morning home for almost seven years. But today's message is not the last because we're going to take a little bit of time to uh, study the implication of these last verses in Matthew. And this is uh, one of the most important passages of Scripture, so we do need to take our time with it. And Matthew closes out with the words of Jesus on a very triumphant note where we see the authority of Jesus Christ proclaimed and the commission to preach the gospel to the world. I want to begin reading at verse number 16. We'll read to the closing verse of verse 20. If you'd stand with me, please, as we look at God's word. Matthew 20 and verse number 16, 28 rather, in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for this uh, message that's been given in Scripture about proclaiming the gospel to the world. And as we look at this a little bit differently today, I just ask you, Lord, that uh, you would open up our hearts to the reception of the truth of your word, that we might see this commission, the great commission that was given to our own Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in your name, in the blessed name of the Savior. Amen. You may be seated. You'll notice on your listening sheet today that there is no outline. Uh, today, what you can do is you can just jot down some notes if you'd like to as we go through this presentation. Uh, I don't think that there's any Christian that's actually unfamiliar with these last words in the Gospel of Matthew. I know there's some of you that can quote them exactly. Perhaps there are many of you that can. In our Sunday school department, this is one of the things that gets taught to the young people, to little children even, as a uh, Bible verses to memorize, especially these verses 19 and 20, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, which represent for us the gospel, the commission to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as I say, perhaps you can, uh, you can quote the words exactly, but even if you can't, you are a Christian. You certainly are a Christian. You know these because someone was faithful to carry out the words that Jesus spoke in this passage. Now, that might have been someone who bring the, brought the gospel to you at work. It might be someone who stopped by your house, or uh, perhaps you heard it in church as a preacher preached from the pulpit. Maybe someone handed you a tract, or even you got a Bible that was given by a publisher, uh, or printed by a publisher, it found its way into your hands. Maybe a Bible that we would give to people as they come to church on Sunday morning. There are some that look at these verses, the last verses of Matthew, 
And they preach them as if they're the only verses that we have in the Bible. I mean, their concentration is on these two verses, and they stress the importance of obeying the commission that Christ gave his disciples. But I think that many times when people preach the Word of God that way, when they center on one particular aspect of what the Word of God says, that they don't understand the the depth of what is actually there. And this is certainly a very deep passage of Scripture that goes beyond just the simple gospel of Christ. And then there are others who preach and preach and preach, and they never even approach this text. They're always preaching on other things. And uh, they may be good at verse number 20, where it talks about teaching people to observe all things that Christ commanded. And so they'll teach all the doctrines of Scripture, and they'll deal faithfully with that, and it's a very good thing to do. But we also have to remember that these verses are in the Scriptures. We have to preach these. And so one side of this says this is the only thing that we preach, and they concentrate there. And then others want to preach other things and never even touch the truths that are found in these words. So we need to realize that these are not the only verses of Scripture that are in the Bible, but they are actually in the Bible, and we do need to teach them. There are descriptive names that are given to different portions of Scripture. Matthew 5, 3 through 12 is called the Beatitudes. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is known as the resurrection chapter. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13 is known as the Lord's Prayer. Or perhaps more correctly, it should be the disciples' prayer. John 17, uh, we believe, is the real Lord's Prayer, or that is the intercessory prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this particular passage that we read today has its own description. And you recognize it as the Great Commission. And the article, The, is put in front of that to show us that it stands above the orders, all the orders that are given by our Lord, because this is God's way of making known salvation to all people in all nations. Now, I understand all of that, and we're going to deal with all of that as we go through uh, these particular verses. But I want to introduce you to another thought this morning. Uh, I agree with S. Lewis Johnson, who said that this passage of Matthew 28, 19, and 20 is a great commission, but it is not the great commission. It is not the great commission. And as important as these words are, they actually rank below another commission, the great commission that was given by God. Now, in the title of the message this morning, you see the THE, I put that in all caps, so that I can emphasize that the commission that I want to talk to you about today is really the one that is the greatest. A moment ago I said, when the choir sang, that it was almost scary what they sang about, because we didn't plan this at all. But I'd like you to turn to Galatians chapter 4, where we find THE Great Commission. Uh, Genesis chapter 4 Uh, S. Lewis Johnson said, and I'm I'm sure that it was not original with him, he said, the Great Commission is actually found in the book of Galatians. So Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, here the Apostle Paul writes to us and tells us what is the Great Commission. And he says there, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now, we think about the Great Commission as being Christ sending his own apostles into the world. 
And by transference, as we study that passage, we'll understand that it's also him sending us into the world to preach the gospel of Christ. But the Great Commission was when the Father sent his own Son into the world, and when the Son became flesh and was made subject to the law of God, uh, he brought with him the ability to establish a relationship with our Lord God as his children. And so this commission of Galatians chapter 4, this is the one that's primary. The one in uh, Matthew 28, 19, and 20 could not exist unless we have the one that's spoken of here in Galatians chapter 4. And this is a commission that actually supersedes that other because without this one in Galatians 4, the one in Matthew 28 could not exist. And so that makes... Matthew 28, 19, and 20, subordinate to Galatians 4 and 5. And I want you to understand that it doesn't diminish, it doesn't diminish at all what, what Jesus said in Matthew 28. It doesn't diminish at all. But what it does is to accentuate how that it is so necessary and, and accentuates in a greater way how fully dependent that we are on the activity of God for our salvation. This is a commission that was god to God. What we see in Galatians 4 is a, uh, is a commission that's given within the Godhead, and there's nothing that approaches the supreme importance of the Godhead. Well, the Matthew commission is a commission from God to man, and it's a commission that's fulfilled by man in the power of God, in the plan of God. But in this commission of Galatians 4, there are no men that are involved in this. This is God to God. It's God the Father and God the Son. And before we get down to studying verses in, in Matthew, I think that we need to take some time today to, to look at this great commission. And I want to show you why that within the triune Godhead, the Father made this covenant with His Son that He would send Him into the world. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world. And 1 John 4.10 says that God sent His Son. And in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed to His Father... And he said, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. Now, to understand John chapter 17, we have to go back to the very beginning, and we have to see what necessitates the work that Christ was given to do. We need to see what necessitates Matthew 28, 19, and 20. What is the reason that God first commissioned Christ to come into the world? And that'll take us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and the account of creation. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, within a short time of Adam's creation, Adam sinned. Adam was created in innocence, but then he broke God's law. And there was no written law then, as we have it now, but Adam still very clearly understood that he was a created being. He understood who his creator was, and he knew that he was subject to God. And you might not understand this very well, and I'm not sure that we actually do, but Adam's sin, the act that Adam did, was a treacherous act. Oh, it, it might seem to us quite small. Sometimes we describe it as simply as a bite of an apple, that all that Adam did was to bite an apple. And I'll tell you, I don't think it was an apple at all. Uh, I, I think that uh, this tree that uh, Adam ate of no longer exists. I think that God cursed the ground after it, and this was the first tree that perished from the earth. But whatever the fruit was that 
Adam ate of. He defied God. He defied the perfect holiness of God. He was put into an environment of perfect peace and of holiness, and Adam shattered that. Adam fell from that state of innocence, and what he did was the most serious sin that has ever been committed. And we notice that the Bible does not record any other sin that Adam committed. Adam lived 939 years. And did you know that there's no other sin that the Bible says that Adam did that is recorded? Now, I'm not saying that Adam didn't sin anymore because I think that he did. But I'm just saying here that God had a point to make that he only recorded one sin of Adam because there he established the nature of every person that's born after Adam. The Bible tells us that that one sin of Adam tells us about that one sin, and then it begins to show us how that sin becomes a repetitive problem. More sins developed, and more types of sins developed. And then the Bible goes on, and it shows how Adam's sin was transmitted to all afterwards. Adam's first son was born. His name was Cain. And when he was born, Eve thought that she had received the promise of Genesis 3.15. She thought that it had already come, that when this, with this son, that God was going to right all the wrongs. And so she said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And that expression was to say, here's the one that's going to rectify the wrong. Here's the one that's going to take care of it. And she thought that God was going to fix all things through Cain. But very soon, we see that Cain disobeyed God. He brought the wrong kind of a sacrifice. And then Cain showed how much worse that sin can get. Because Eve had a second son and his name was Abel and Cain killed Abel. And that sin was the worst sin that one person could do to another. And so we have the two greatest commandments that have been broken. Adam rejected God's perfect love. The command is to love God with all our heart, our soul, and our might. And Adam rejected that that love of God. And then Cain committed the next sin. He broke the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And so there, it's amazing that within the first generation, we have the two greatest things that have been done. The two greatest sins have been committed. That is hatred of God, turning against the love of God, and then not loving our fellow man. And Jesus said, on those two things hang all the law and the prophets. And then we see sin again. And it's not very long, and it's really a fascinating sin. We find it in Genesis 4, verse number 19, where it says, And Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. So Adam ate of the tree. That showed that he loved himself more than he loved God. And then there was murder, which showed that Cain loved himself more than he loved his fellow man. And then the next sin that comes on the scene is the perversion of marriage. And that's God's first human institution. The marriage vow was destroyed. Lamech started the trend of destroying the family when he married two wives. And so now we have the family that's under full attack, and we know today the perversion that has resulted from that, what's happened to marriage. So we have hatred of man, we have hatred of our fellow man, we have hatred of God rather, then we have hatred of our fellow man, we have hatred of marriage. And so right here at the beginning, we have religion, man, and marriage that are perverted. Whatever man touches, he ruins. And then to find the mention of the next sin, you have to go to Genesis chapter 6. And most of you, I think, know what this is. This is after many, many generations and men have multiplied and sin has multiplied because wherever there are people, there is sin. 
And it became exceedingly ugly. So that Genesis 6-5 says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And you know what happened after that? That God sent a flood. And God destroyed all people from the earth. And in the middle of all of that wickedness, there was only one man and his family that served God. And I'm not too sure that all of the family was actually as righteous as Noah was, but God preserved this one family. God saved Noah and his family, and that preserved the human race. And the biggest miracle that we see, beginning there in Genesis chapter 6, is not that God sent a flood to destroy the world. The biggest miracle is that God didn't destroy everybody. That he didn't just kill everybody upon the earth because sin was so real and sin was so horrible and sin was so much against God. God should have destroyed it all if uh, he was going to be perfectly, as we would say, justice must be served. Then what God should have done was to destroy the whole earth. But God had a different plan or all the people on the earth. Now the problem though, God started the human race over. He preserved the human race with Noah. But Noah was infected still with sin. The original sin had passed on to Noah, and it's been with him, it had been with him, the, the world throughout all those generations. So there we find Noah, he gets off of the ark, and the next sin that is mentioned is that Noah planted a vineyard, he made some wine, and he got drunk. That is in Genesis 9.21. And I read that, and it becomes very curious to me that we have Christians today who defend drinking alcohol. And that happened to be the first sin after Noah got off of the ark. And that is the sin that started the course of rebellion against God all over again. And then you notice the next sin. Uh, you see how the Bible is just mentioning sin, and another sin, and another sin. And as it does, it gets us into different categories of sin. And do you know what the next sin is? It's in Genesis 9.24, which many people believe was an act of sodomy. And for the uninitiated, that means homosexuality. And then when we get into Genesis 10, verse 9, there's a man by the name of Nimrod. And his name means rebel. Nimrod was a rebel, and he built a city that's and a kingdom that was called Babel. And that name of that city became Babylon. And from that point of Scripture all the way to the end of Scripture, Babylon stands for anti-God. And it stands for anti-Christ. So I could go on and we could just list the sins as we go through the book of Genesis. And we find that the history of man is not a history of greatness. And it's not a history of kindness. It's not a history of goodness. But it is a history of sin, of anarchy, and of hatred against God. God had created man and put him into a beautiful garden. He gave him love and goodness and every provision that he would ever need, but man sinned. Well, returning to that first sin, the only one mentioned in the 939 years of Adam's life, the reason for the mention of this one sin and the pattern that follows is that God is showing us that sin entered the human race by Adam. In Romans 5.12 it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So sin entered into the world, and death came into the world by sin, and every person that's born into the world has this sinful nature that's been transmitted to him by Adam. And so in that, Adam represents the entire human race. All men are tried 
in Adam. And maybe you don't think that's fair. Maybe you don't think that God should have tried the whole human race in Adam. But then we have to ask, how much better are any of we? Are we? If we, if we were put into the same position, what would we do? And there's none of us that would have done any differently than Adam did. And there's none of us that can look at our lives and say, well, God should have judged the world by me. I should have been the standard. And you very well know that. If you were the standard, what kind of shape would, be in? would we be in? So sin was in the world, and nobody did anything about it. Nobody tried to do anything about it. Nobody wanted to do anything about it. Nobody could do anything about it. Because you can get rid of sin just as easily as you can come back from the dead. And that, in fact, is why Jesus was able to come back from the dead, was because he had no sin. And so you would think that after all this time, and as sweet as our leaders are, and how they're always giving speeches about peace and about human rights and about equality, and they're always telling us that what we need to do is what, it, what is right, you would think by now that what man would have done is to outlaw sin. But you know that hasn't happened. We have a Supreme Court that's backed by a president and a political party and by those of another party that just made sin the law. Oh, we made murder the law many years ago. And so you look at what's happened in America, and we have the first major, five major sins that we find in the Bible that are now the law of our land. People hate God. They despise human life because we murder babies in the womb. And they have perverted marriage now. And they raised a glass of wine to it to celebrate their success and then... They forced homosexuality upon us. So we can just thank the evil powers that be that Hillary Clinton is running for president because it takes a village to raise a child and that makes it so much easier on us to make everybody as perverted as we are. So how bad is this? What about Planned Parenthood and those videos with a director having lunch over a salad and a glass of wine while casually discussing how to crush unborn babies so they can enrich themselves by harvesting their organs for sale. And then what about a news media that immediately started damage control after those videos came out and they defended the practice and major news columnists have said this is a non-event. Actually, this is something for us to yawn over. Nobody's going to outlaw sin. Nobody is going to outlaw it. It's the cause of death to every person born on the planet and nobody tries to do away with sin. And there you have the cause of the Great Commission. That's why Galatians 4, 4, and 5 was necessary. Man will not and he cannot do anything about sin and he will not and he cannot do anything about death. And then here's another striking thing about Adam's sin. When he disobeyed God, he knew it. You know, I think most people miss that that Adam did not have to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to know what good and evil were. And that's because God had already spoken to him. And God had already told him that he could not eat of that tree, and if he ate of it, it was certain death. And there's a difference about in knowing about evil and experiencing evil. And when Adam ate of that tree, he experienced evil, and then he became a sinner. And he was not a sinner before. And once you have sinned, you can't undo that. Once you have sinned, you are a sinner. Once you steal, you are a thief. Once you commit adultery, you are an adulterer. Once you lie, you are a liar. You can't change that. So Adam sinned, and he was a sinner, and he knew what he did was wrong. Immediately, 
when he ate it. I mean, he knew it before he ate, I should say. But then after he ate, what Adam did was immediately to begin displaying the characteristics of sin. So what did Adam do? Did he impatiently jump from one foot to another and say, God, you've got to come down here. God, you've got to come and help me. I've done something wrong. You've got to fix this. That's not what Adam did. Instead, Adam showed sin already in his life, the manifestation of it, by hiding from God. Adam did not want to face God, and so God had to come to the garden to Adam, and he said, Adam, where are you? And so here we have two great precedents set in the very beginning of the Bible before we even get two and a half chapters in. And that is, number one, that man is a wicked sinner, and number two, God must initiate the cure. Man will not come to God. God must come to him. And it's puzzling that the first principles of the theology of salvation given in the very early chapters of the Bible are missed. Men will not come to God. God must come to man. And I'll tell you something else about this, that God did not say to Adam, Adam, would you please take off your fig leaves and put on these skins that I've provided? Adam, would you, would you pretty please do that? Adam, I'm begging you to get out of those fig leaves. Adam, I love you so much, I can't do this without you. And so please, Adam, love me back, love me back. I don't want to mess with your right to choose. So you decide to do this, Adam. Pick me, pick me. And that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Nobody wants to mess with anybody's right to choose. And so what do we have? Millions and millions of dead babies on our hands. And so what do you think when God comes to a person and God says, Oh no, not me. It's not me that's going to choose you. It's up to you. You must choose me. You do what you think is best. Oh, Adam had already tried that. God didn't ask. God didn't ask Adam. He clothed Adam. He sacrificed animals. And those physical deaths of those animals were the first in the world. God killed animals to clothe Adam and Eve. And sin was the reason that God had to give this great commission. Well, now let's talk about the other type of death. Romans 5.12 said, Death passed upon all men. And we know that God didn't strike Adam dead immediately upon his sin when he ate of the fruit. Adam lived 939 more years. So Romans 5.12 must have a deeper meaning than physical death, even though physical death is also there. Oh, the more significant reference, of course, is to spiritual death. That when Adam ate, he was plunged into spiritual death. And what happened was, as soon as he ate of that tree, his spirit died immediately. The relationship that he could have with God was gone immediately. It died immediately. And that's why Adam feared God. We're talking about a man who anxiously awaited for God to show up in the garden. That God wanted to walk and uh, Adam wanted to walk and talk with God. But now God comes and Adam is found hiding among the trees because he fears God's presence. And I find it quite interesting that educated preachers who love to preach Matthew 28, 19, and 20 have a great deal of trouble understanding what it means when the Bible talks about spiritual death. Whenever you see physical death, and spiritual death coupled in one place, like you do in Romans 5.12, you know that the Bible is making a comparison. Death means no life. You don't need a dictionary to define dead. When the county is out picking up roadkill, and they find a mutilated deer, nobody stands around and argues about whether that deer is really dead. 
Do we need a definition of dead? No, we don't need a definition of dead. And spiritual death is just like that. Spiritual death means no spiritual activity. It means there is no life towards God. And this is what dead men need. They need life. And that's why Ephesians 2.1 says that God has to bring dead sinners to life. They are dead in their trespasses and sin. They can't do anything. There is no repentance and faith that will come from them. No, no good can be done at all until God brings them to life. And the precedent for that theology is as old as creation. It's found in the Garden of Eden that man is a dead sinner and nothing gets fixed until God comes. And not until God finds man who does not want to be found. Men sin and God seeks. Nobody hears God's footsteps behind them and they say, Well, here I am, God. I'm standing right here in the open. Come and get me. You come and fix this problem that I have. Nobody does that. And nobody will do that because nobody has the capacity to do it. Didn't we see the pattern? Disobedience and murder and messed up marriage, continuing evil, rebellion, drunkenness, sodomy, and on and on it goes. That is spiritual death. And who is spiritually dead? that can turn his own depraved will around and come to Christ. And let me ask, with, with so many sins over so many generations, what are you going to say when God comes to you and says, where are you? Adam had only one sin. And he wouldn't say, God, I need you to fix this. And so what are you going to say when sin has been heaped up in your life like a horse stall that's never been mucked? What are you going to do? People are not going to come. They won't do it. They can't do it. God must come. And that's what Jesus was commissioned to do. He came to seek and to save the lost. And they didn't look for him. We, we've studied Matthew in these past few months and looked at this, la these last days of Jesus' life. We've been there for weeks and weeks and weeks, and we know what they did to Jesus Christ. They were spiritually dead, and nobody comes to him until God has done a marvelous work in their souls. Oh, I think people that preach the commission of Matthew 28, 19, and 20 need to reflect more seriously on the great commission that we find in Galatians 4, 4, and 5. God sent his son. And nothing gets done unless God initiates. And you have to get that right. If you don't get that right, you will go through the scriptures and continually find yourself falling in deep theological holes that you cannot crawl out of. The pray your prayer, raise your hand and come to Jesus crowd looks at Matthew 28, 19 and 20 and they try to preach how much that Jesus did for you without really understanding how much that Jesus did for you. They don't understand this because they want to leave you with an impossible weight and that is the impediment of your own stubborn will. And that stubborn will has to be overcome before you could ever come to Jesus Christ. Oh, we look at Paul and we see what God did with Paul. God struck him down. And the first words that came out of Paul's mouth were, Lord, what will you have me to do? And have you ever noticed about Paul, that he didn't get 17 verses of just as I am. He got only one verse that was sung by God. This is what you are going to do. Now hang on with me just a little bit. I have more to say. Let's take a trip back to the beginning once more. And let's go to Genesis chapter 1. 
Genesis is the foundation for Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And so let's see what God did. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, where we find the creation of man. And here it says, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now I don't have time to talk about this particular aspect, but these are verses that you must believe. If you say that you believe in Jesus Christ, you must also believe what God wrote here in the book of Genesis chapter 1 because these are things that Jesus quoted from in the New Testament. And he said these things are true. So what we don't find in Genesis chapter 1 is any evolution. Romans 5.12 could not be true unless Genesis chapter 1 is true. That death started with Adam. Evolution requires millions of years of death before man ever comes on the scene. So somebody is lying. And I don't think that it's God. But that's not my point today. God said, let us make man after our likeness. Now, if God said, let's make man in our image, he can't mean, or he couldn't have meant, let's, mean, let, let's start with a monkey. Or let's start with a Neanderthal. Well, the image of God would have to be something that God is. Well, that doesn't mean man has equality with God, which is what many people think that they have, that their opinions are as good as God's opinions. Adam had already tried that when he ate of the tree. He thought that would make him like God. No, there was something that God was doing, something in God when he made man that reflected who God is. And I think that there could be a few answers to this. I think reason and intelligence would have to be there because that's what God is, because God is wisdom and knowledge. I think health would have to be there, that God created man healthy because God has no sicknesses. There's nothing unhealthy about God which is a very good reason that you'd want to go to heaven for those of us that have all these problems, health problems. Man was created innocent, and that's because God has no sin. God is holy. The image of God is what he said, that man would be created in his image, and that image reflects the glory of God. Paul and I had a conversation several weeks ago that's Paul Lostness, not the Apostle Paul. Um, I haven't actually met the Apostle Paul, although I have met the Apostle Peter, who came here once, and at least he said that he was Peter. I'm not sure if he was right or not. But I haven't actually met the Apostle Paul, but I did have a conversation with Paul Lostness back here. We were standing at the door a few weeks ago on Sunday morning, and we were having a conversation about Adam and Eve and what it was like before they sinned. And Paul introduced the idea as we were standing there that there was an aura about Adam, that there was a glow that covered his nakedness. And if that's true, then I think that it would be best described as the light of the glory of God. And I think that would be somewhat like Moses, who, when he was with God on Mount Sinai, came down from the mountain and his face was shining. And it was so bright that the people couldn't look at him. Moses couldn't be in God's presence without absorbing the glory of God. But we think about Adam 
and what it must have been like for him, that Adam was much closer to God than Moses could ever be. And that's because Adam had no sin. Moses was a sinner when he met God, but Adam had no sin. And he was right there in the presence of God. He was walking and talking with God. And I might even introduce this thought to you, that there he was walking in the garden with God, and that very well could have been a pre-manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you might look at that in Genesis 3.8, where it says it was the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden. And what is Jesus other than the living word who is the voice of God? So I could see how that Paul would be right about this. That's Paul Lostus. He could be right about it, that there was a glow about Adam, and that glow was the glory of God. And here's where I think that you find the purpose of man's creation. Why are we here? And that's an age-old question that everybody ought to know and everybody ought to be able to answer, that the reason that we were created was for God's glory. There isn't any other purpose for us to exist. The first question of the Westminster Catechism, number one in the list, is what is the chief end of man? And the answer to the question is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so God created man and he put him in the garden and he gave man a wife and he said to them, multiply, and what I want you to do is produce a whole race that will glorify me, a whole race that will enjoy me forever. Well, now it's time to introduce a theological problem. And I don't want you to drive yourself crazy with this one. You can't figure this out because God's ways are higher than our ways. We, if we could figure out everything, then we would be God, which is what Adam wanted to be. But there's a branch of theology that's dedicated to figuring out exactly when did God decree the fall of man? How did God decree the fall of man? Or even if God did decree the fall of man? If you ever hear this term, lapsarianism, that refers to man's fall. And so you have different types of lapsarianism. You have superlapsarianism, you have infolapsarianism, there's sublapsarianism, and so on. And what that's for is to define at what point did God decree to elect man to salvation? Was that before the decree of the fall, or was it after the decree of the fall? Now, I told you you could write down notes. Do you need to write down that? Probably not. Because you've got enough to worry about, worrying about how long it's going to be before we get done. So, the thing that I want to address, though, is the last part of those series of questions. Did God decree the fall? Now, the answer to that question has to be yes. Because there's nothing that happens that God has not sovereignly decreed to happen. Oh, it's super nonsense to think that God created the world and that what God did was he said, well, I'm going to put man down here in the world and this is my class project. And I'm going to see what happens. What is man going to do? And so he put us into the world like lab rats and he wanted to see what we would do. Well, God is not that kind of a God. No, God decreed the fall would happen and your opinion about whether he should or he shouldn't have done that is an opinion that's based in the Adam's sinful desire to be God. There's one major thing that I know about why God decreed the fall, and that is God decreed it for his glory, and that's why he created the world. Decreeing the fall would do, would, would serve, I should say, God's greatest glory. And so God decreed the fall without actually being responsible for what Adam did. And don't trouble yourself trying to figure that one out. 
the matchless grace of God in redeeming man from sin, the supreme love of God in sending His own Son into the world to die for sin, that could never be known unless Adam had fallen. That side of God could never be known. Adam could never have any experiential knowledge of that without the fall. And that doesn't make Adam's sin righteous. As Paul said, we don't sin that grace may abound. But he used the fall, God used the fall to show the widest range of his attributes. And this is so overwhelming that the apostle Peter wrote, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And to whom it was revealed, that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Oh, do you see glory in verse 11? Glory would follow the sufferings of Christ. That glory follows the sufferings of Christ, and that is because of the fall of man. And this thing about salvation is so perplexing that Peter says the angels desire to look into this. They don't understand this. These angels that have been created in holiness, preserved in holiness, don't understand what's happening with salvation, how that God did this. And so there's none of us that's going to be able to figure out all of these things about why God permitted a fall, why God did it this way, why did God bring himself glory this way. We only know this, that God did it because that's the way it should have been done. And so you have to look at it this way. Who did God intend to glorify? Who is it that God wanted to shine the light on within the Godhead? Oh, God created man in order to shine the spotlight on the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son. And so everything that is in creation, everything that, in its, that is in Scripture, finds its focus in Jesus Christ. And man was created to put that focus on Jesus Christ. And the fall and the redemption of man emphasize that. And so if you come out of this thinking, oh, I'm a robot in God's diabolical plan, you think that way only because your mind is depraved. You are incapable of thinking that everything is about Christ instead of everything is about you. And that's the problem that has to be tackled. Gospel presentations and the fulfilling of the Matthew 28 and 19, 20 commission is fraught with the idea that the end game is man and not Christ. And that's why we struggle with whether salvation is man's choice or is it God's choice. Oh, God gave his son a commission and he came here, and here we find him closing out all that the Father gave him to do on the earth. Next will come the ascension of Christ. He leaves the world because the personal work and the redemption of man is through. Now listen to his prayer to the Father just before the cross in the real Lord's Prayer. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. And thou hast given him power, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. 
I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So you see, all of this is done for glory. The purpose is always glory. Nothing goes by God that he does not ultimately turn into his glory. So now you have man in the garden. Adam is in the garden and he sinned against God and the brilliant light of God's presence went out. And so what was left was Adam's nakedness and that was a sign of his spiritual death. And that's the sign of disgust in God's eyes. And so God cast him out of the garden. And since Adam, there has never been a person who's been born with the brilliant light of God's glory. All of us are sinners. And that fact is repeated so many times that you can put your finger down on any page of Scripture and find sin and the consequences of it. And we've seen it. We traced it. Adam to Cain, and uh, Cain to Lamech, and then to Noah, and then to Nimrod, and on and on it goes. And never do we find in the Word of God, in man, the aura of God's glory. Instead, we find man ripping babies out of the womb, crushing them in the process. We abuse the family with, with gay marriage. He created them male and female, and we say, that's not right. And so we destroy thousands of years of God's ordained plan and we show how really stupid that we are. Man ignores God because he is Ichabod without glory. And that's why Jesus received the commission. He came to restore glory. He came to redeem man and to bring him back to God and to the purpose of his creation. He came to restore the image of God in him and he does that by glorifying us and taking us to heaven. Well, the scripture says that God chose us before the foundation of the world. It says that Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And you can just put those two things together and you find that the fall of man relates to God's eternal purpose. And the goal of the Great Commission is the glory of Jesus Christ. And so we come to Matthew 28, 19, and 20 and we see a Great Commission... This is God's way of getting the news out of what he did. And we'll see that as we study this, that all things necessary to redeem man and bring him back into the image of God, all of that has been seen fit to happen through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let me close with these scriptures. It's a great note to close on. Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that all things work together for good, to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You notice it says the called according to his purpose. And what might that purpose be? Do you wonder about it now that I've told you? And what will happen to us? Those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we will be conformed to the image of, son, of his Son. The glory of God and the image of the Son of God will be restored in us. So this is first. This is first before the commission of Matthew 28, 19, and 20. It's Galatians 4, 4, and 5. And it is the great commission. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now. And we think about the great 
sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He was sent into the world to restore the image of God in us. Lord, all that he did was for his own glory. Our purpose in life is to live to the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, first, we can't do that unless you come to us, unless you initiate the work of salvation in our hearts and enable us to come in repentance and faith. We understand that. And then we should understand that after we have received you as Lord and Savior, that we have committed ourselves to live to the glory of God. And so I pray either way that we find people today, either condition that we find them in, lost without Jesus Christ, that you come to them and open up their hearts to the gospel to understand what Jesus did. And if we have no one here that's not saved today, that you would speak to Christians and understand that the glory of Jesus Christ is to be the main purpose of our lives, really the only purpose of our lives, to glorify Jesus Christ. Help us to do that today, Lord. Help us to commit ourselves to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.